Welcome to The Hub Dialogues, a podcast that celebrates big thinkers and bold ideas about a better future for all of us. I'm Rudyard Griffiths, the executive director of The Hub, Canada's leading source for analysis and insights on public policy. Our goal at The Hub is to escape the opinion bubbles of conventional conversation and prod our popular discourse back to the issues and ideas that matter, that can shape our collective future. On The Hub Dialogues, you'll hear Sean Spear, our editor-at-large, in conversation with some of the world's sharpest minds and brightest thinkers about the issues and ideas they're passionate about and that they think we should spend more time focusing on. The next voice you'll hear is that of Sean Spear in conversation with our guest. Enjoy this Hub Dialogue. Welcome to Hub Dialogues. I'm your host, Sean Spear editor-at-large at at The Hub. I'm honored to be joined today by Josh McCabe, who's a scholar of family policy and household stability at the Niskanen Center, a Washington-based think tank. Prior to joining there, Josh was a sociology professor and assistant dean for social sciences at Endicott College in Massachusetts. He's a fascinating thinker and researcher in part because his work often involves comparative analysis of Canada. In fact, Josh is a real Canadian file. I'm not familiar with any other international policy scholar with such a deep and sophisticated understanding of the Canadian policy landscape for the purposes of informing his or her work. I've asked him to join me today to discuss his interest in Canada and how it influences his thinking, as well as emerging debates and trends in the world of U.S. family policy, and whether we're seeing a generational change in this policy area, including among conservatives. Josh, thanks for joining us at Hub Dialogues. Thanks for having me, Sean. Let's start with a question about you and your work. From my vantage point, you sit at an interesting intersection between sociology, economics, and politics. How would you describe your research and the lens that you apply? Yeah, so I'm trained as a comparative historical sociologist, and, and my focus is largely on public policy. The thing that's really motivated me is lots of questions of why the U.S. is different on all sorts of social policy. So the classic question why is the U.S. the only country without a value-added tax, without an equalization block grant? And once you expand that question, there's a lot of interesting public policy issues you can explore, particularly if you're looking at uh, Canada. If I could ask another question about you and your work, you travel, Josh, in what might be called uh, reform conservative circles, and you've been cited by conservative opinion leaders as someone who's doing important work to reconceptualize the center-right policy agenda to better reflect the needs and challenges of 21st century life. How did you end up being appropriated by conservatives? And do you see yourself as part of a conservative intellectual tradition? Unlike most sociologists, I, I lean to the right. I've sort of always leaned to the right. I've gone up through the ranks of Institute for Humane Studies and in other groups that have sort of fostered that. I think in Canada, the Um, Institute for Liberal Studies has done a lot of good work along these lines. And I chose sociology because I just thought it gave me the tools to to answer these sorts of questions. And it could allow me to explore these questions in a way that ironically, you know, isn't sort of an ideological threat to, to most folks within sociology. So if you're looking at fiscal sociology, you're looking at taxes, most sociologists don't have an understanding of, of taxes in other countries, so it leaves a little bit more room 
to ask those questions and, and take it in a direction that I think is, if, if you're a reformed conservative, you know, these are, are answers that you, you always thought were the case. You can find evidence that there's the case for this. And you can sort of make that case to, to other folks in academia without being seen as a, a sort of ideologue or some sort of conservative threat. Now we have the answer. There's a kind of a, a, a this is a case of, of self-protection in choosing Canada as a, a primary target for your comparative analysis. Tell us a, a bit about the Niskanen Center. Like you, it has a bit of heterodoxy to its work. There are definitely some conservatives like you and Samuel Hammond, who we've previously had on the show, but there are others who are associated with the organization that would probably reject um, being called conservative. So what's this raison d'etre? How would you describe the values and ideas and principles that guide the Niskanen Center's work? Yeah, I think the, the key word we try to use is partisanship. And this is the idea that I think everyone on the team, we come from very different backgrounds. I know there's some some Bernie Sanders guys, some Romney guys. But the idea is of, of transpartisanship is that you come to an agreement on particular policies or policy directions or approaches from, from very different angles. It's not like a lowest common denominator bipartisanship, like this, this is the best thing that works for us because we can't agree. It's that we actually don't potentially agree on why we think it's a good policy. Uh, some people think it's sort of pro-family. Some people think it's anti-poverty. But at the end of the day, you think the, the policy approach does both. And you can come at it from those two different directions and get to the sort of same policy conclusion. I think that's really important where uh, there's probably less compromise at, at Niskanen, where everyone is doing it for, for different reasons. But it, it ends up working. Okay, that leads me to the most important biographical question. How did you become a Canadian file? As I said in my introduction, I don't know any American policy scholar who's more attuned to policy developments and trends in Canada. What's behind that, Josh? I think it stems from, from two issues where in sociology, most folks will look at the United Kingdom, they'll look at France, they'll look at Germany as comparative case studies for the US. These are, these are the big classics. And folks just tended to overlook Canada but what really struck me is how similar the U.S. and Canada are on, on all sorts of issues. You have sort of the same characters in these policy circles, same sort of culture, same sort of issues they're dealing with, talking in similar ways. But you're getting divergent policy outcomes. And that really piqued my interest, right? So if, if you think that agrarian coalitions matter for building a welfare state, they look similar in the two countries. If you think that these things are obstacles to a particular policy, but they're both present in the U.S. and Canada. It piques a lot of questions. So I just started with that, that these are, are really good comparative case studies and everyone's overlooking them. And, you know, much to their detriment, I'm going to go ahead and, and take advantage of that. So my, my first book looked at the, the politics of family allowances or child benefits with this idea that the U.S. had a, a non-refundable child tax credit. In Canada, typically had a family allowance or a fully refundable child tax credit. But you had the same coalition of anti-poverty liberals and pro-family conservatives working on it and coming to very different conclusions, right? So it wasn't that American Republicans are bad or they hate poor people or things like that. Uh, you had the same sort of characters in Canada, just viewing it from a, a different perspective. Then the question is, why is that the case? So you sort of go back in history and you say, okay, maybe these things 
happened post-war period or, or, you know, 50, 75 years ago that are sort of influencing the trajectories of these two countries that look the same even up to the 1930s. So that sort of is useful for, for two reasons. One, I think it helps you push back against a lot of stereotypes about American conservatives that, you know, they've got these pathological issues or things like that. And two, I think it shows that there is conservative case for policies that, you know, the, the modern Republican Party isn't currently pushing for, but there might be very conservative reasons to push for it. And there's good ways to do it and bad ways to do it. And Canada is, is a model for a lot of the, the good ways to do uh, some of these policies. That's a good segue, Josh, into some questions I want to put to you about your, your scholarship on family benefits and child benefits. Let me just say for listeners, I had so many questions I wanted to put to Josh on those issues that we won't cover in today's conversation. Josh is thinking on Canada's equalization program, but I would strongly recommend listeners to read his work on the subject. It's had a profound effect on how I think about equalization. Josh effectively argues that by having a single program with the purpose of broadly equalizing state capacity across subnational jurisdictions, Canada has been able to establish a system of federalism that's much more decentralized than the U.S., which, you know, at, at some level reflects a conservative idea, a conservative principle. And so, in effect, Josh has argued that if American conservatism, American conservatives, that is, want to achieve greater degree of decentralization within the American federal system, they ought to support something like Canadian equalization. So as I say, I'm afraid we won't get to that today, but it's a, a really important line of argument, and I'd encourage people to uh, read Josh's work on the subject. Um, okay, you've been a champion for something of a universal child care benefit in the United States. And while we're far from mission accomplished, there was a temporary expansion of the child tax credit in the pandemic relief package, and we're starting to see politicians like Mitt Romney advance similar proposals. Before we look forward, Josh, let me ask you about what explains the lack of more dedicated support for families in the U.S. I've been struck, for instance, that pro-family Republicans haven't championed maternity benefits, which seems completely consistent with a worldview that grants primacy to families. I, I suppose that's a long way of saying what's behind the American conservative aversion to family benefits. Ostensibly, it's not parsimoniousness. The U.S. government has run deficits for more than 20 consecutive years. Yeah, so the the big difference uh, is mostly, uh, as far as I can tell, an accident of, of history, right? So um, family allowances or, or child benefits are widely accepted in Canada today, but that wasn't necessarily always the case. For a while, you had social workers were against them. You had concerns about how the money would be spent. You hear a lot of the echoes of the concerns of, of American policymakers today. But the big difference is Leonard Marsh and, and the Marsh Report and a Critical Juncture in Canadian History sort of opened up a new opportunity, right? So Canada had looked like the U.S. with an emphasis on work relief and, you know, make work programs. And the Marsh Report and a couple of other things sort of shifted Canadian views toward that. And when you implement a policy, we, we talk about after the policy is implemented, the politics tend to change. We have these feedback effects that people sort of make this seem normal. This is just a normal sort of benefit, and you can sort of rationalize this benefit from multiple perspectives. The U.S., that, that never happened for, for, for a bunch of reasons. FDR 
never seriously considered a family allowance. He sort of doubled down on this work relief program and then ended up going more toward exemptions for family members, dependent exemptions. So in Canada, you see um, family allowances and later child tax credits as an income supplement. This idea that families are expensive, but we want to support families. We want to be pro-work and pro-marriage. We want to make sure there's no worker or marriage penalties. Uh, So family allowance is sort of the natural thing to do that. In the U.S., if you don't have that family allowance and people don't know how to think of it, They think of of families in their role as taxpayers, right? So we want to provide tax relief to families. We want to make sure tax relief is is pro-work, is pro-marriage. But if you have a progressive income tax system, then you tend to exclude the lowest income families, technically because they're not paying any of those federal taxes. Uh, So it's not some sort of animosity toward the poor or anything like that. It's just uh, you're perceiving families in different ways and sort of the logic of what's appropriate or inappropriate differs across the, the U.S. and Canada. Um, so we, we see some of that today as well. One of the intra-conservative arguments is that family allowances ought to come with work conditions. It's an idea that's inspired, at least in part, by the welfare reforms of the mid-90s. Well, I support stringent work conditions for social assistance in the sense that social assistance purpose is to serve as a stabilizer for people as they transition back into employment, I I don't understand why the state should have a view on whether parents, including single parents, are working in order to receive a child benefit or a family allowance. But put differently, why would we sacrifice basic subsistence for children on insisting their parents work? One thing I've wondered, Josh, is whether these demands for work conditions are sincere in that they reflect a genuine attempt to improve child benefit proposals, or if they're a poison pill to kill them. Help our listeners understand the thinking here and your views on this important debate. Yeah, no, I think I think there's sincere views. And one of the issues has to do with this idea of what constitutes welfare or something else. So in Canada, right, you have welfare, which is social assistance, and it's sort of an income support for the poorest families. And everyone is fine with work requirements, right? So this is not something that is American in origin or is not just common to America. You see it in Canada. You see it everywhere else, this idea that income support or social assistance should be subject to work requirements. The key difference is that in Canada, an income supplement is just seen as a supplement for families. It's not going to support a family on their own, but it just gives them a, a, a small boost because they have children. And in Canada, there's, there's, no, there's no sort of push to have work requirements for that because it just seems inappropriate, right? It's not welfare. It's something totally distinct. So it, it, I don't think it makes sense to the average Canadian to say this should have a work requirement. The U.S. never had that, that legacy of, of an income supplement or, or family allowance. So we, we added work requirements to uh, welfare, TANF here. And you had dependent exemptions or non-refundable credits were seen as, as tax relief, but we've never had that third category of just an income supplement for families. So when we tried to turn a non-refundable child tax credit into a fully refundable one, red lights went off people's heads that this is turning it into to welfare, because I don't think most people had a way of understanding it other than tax relief or welfare. It's becoming harder to do that because I think after 2017, 
there's not a whole lot of tax relief left to provide to working class families, right? And that's because of success of Reagan, success of, of subsequent um, policy changes. But we're sort of at a dead end, right? And people are running out of options. If tax relief doesn't work, what can we do? And I think now we're seeing more openness to allowing more low-income families to potentially have some sort of, of child benefit. But I think it's going to matter how we get there under what circumstances. You're one click away from getting access to all The Hub's best analysis and insights. Go to our website, www.thehub.ca, and sign up for our daily email newsletter, Per Diem. Each morning at 7 a.m. Eastern, in your inbox, you'll receive the cutting-edge thinking and analysis of our smartest contributors, all curated for you based on the issues and ideas that are moving the public conversation. Sign up now, free of charge, at www.thehub.ca. Now back to our program. Another debate that underpins a lot of natalist policy discussions is differing understandings of what's influencing family behavior. If you think delayed family formation and declining fertility rates are a function of some cultural changes, then you may not be predisposed to a policy intervention. If, however, you think that it's at least in part a function of the financial costs associated with family formation and child rearing, then you may be inclined to support a policy intervention, including large and generous child benefits. Help listeners understand the nature of the debate here and why you think a more expansive natalist policy is both normatively good, but also would have some effects on family formation and fertility. Yeah, I think a lot of this has to do with the historical debate of sort of material factors versus cultural factors. And for a very long time, it was conservatives think cultural factors matter, liberals think material factors matter. And it was always framed as an either or question. I think we've seen a shift maybe in the last, you know, 10 or 20 years to say, you know, maybe it's a little bit of both, right? Culture does matter. Um, the, these family norms do matter. But there's different ways that sort of material factors can support families or undermine them. And the, the big one historically has been looking at, at marriage penalties in the tax code. Right? This idea that you can um, promote marriage all day, but if people are going to lose government benefits because they get married, you know, all the, the cultural pressure in the world isn't going to have people lose money to get married. So that shifted a lot of the conservative focus onto the, these other potential material factors. And it's, it's been, I think, slow going. But as sort of the intellectual case has been made by a lot of the reform conservatives, you've seen a, a new openness to things like broader family allowances or child benefits, paid family leave, and, and other things that can be seen as, as genuinely pro-family conservative measures. Uh, you, you mentioned earlier, Josh, that process matters a great deal in the American political system, which is set up for horse trading, compromise, and accommodation. As you noted, rarely will legislators get precisely what they want. But in a perfect world, help listeners understand what, in your view, would represent a kind of optimal mix of policies that recognize the positive externalities of children and better support American families. Yeah, so I think the, the two big ones, and this is where I, I, I take my, my cue from Canada, is probably some sort of, of child benefit, this idea that 
people like kids. They want to have lots of kids, but they're, you know, they're very expensive. I have two and I spend a lot of money on them. So it helps that if we had some sort of, of child benefit, it would make it more affordable to have kids. And sort of the second half of that is concerns about um, income volatility, right? So um, if you lose your job, if you go through a transition where you might be unemployed, and this is relatively common for, for a lot of people who work, how are you going to work that out when you have children? So I think the, the big benefit of family allowances it's a potentially increased family stability, right? If there's less stress in the family, there's less income volatility, it just makes it easier to, to support your family. And I think the, the second big one is, is paid family leave. This idea that having children are special, that we want to support parents when they have children, whether it's birth or adoption, and, and spend time with those children bonding, and that this is intrinsically important, right? So I know a lot of people make the case for it, in terms of, of supporting, you know, working mothers or things like that. But I think a lot of conservatives say like, no, family is just important. You don't need a, you know, workforce argument to have pay family leave. You just need to say that we want to make sure that parents have time to bond with, with newborns. They have time to take care of their family, whether it's a sick child, whether it's a sick parent. And paid family leave is, is a good way of doing that. And I think most of the proposals now, sort of Democrats Family Act, see it as sort of a feminist approach. But in a lot of cases, if you make a conservative case for that, you can gain a lot of traction. It's just got to be done in a way that resonates with folks who are, are going to have to vote on this. Just in parentheses, the absence of paid family leave in the United States also strikes me as a, a major source of inequity. You know, women in work, working mothers in highly professionalized settings often have some form of employer-provided benefit. My wife, for instance, who's a lawyer in New York City, had approximately five months of, of full paid leave, obviously less generous in, than in Canada. But when you contrast that with working mothers in low-skilled occupations who have essentially no leave, you know, one can't help but think that there are lasting inequities in child development when, in those instances, mothers are, are forced to essentially go back to work immediately after giving birth. So, you know, one hopes that this is an area of policy where we see some progress, especially in the aftermath of the uh, recent Supreme Court decision on, on ab abortion rights. Uh, let me close that parenthesis because I want to ask you about debates that are occurring within the right on some of these issues. It seems to me, Josh, that the most interesting debates about natalism isn't between left and right. It's between, say, AI Scott Winsip and encompasses uh, Orrin Cass on one hand and you and Sam Hammond on the other hand. Let me ask a two-part question. First, is the intro debate about government supporting families a sign that the American intellectual right is at least evolving after years of being stuck in a 1980s set of policy assumptions? And second, what does it say at a time when people are feeling pretty down about conservative politics, about the vitality of American conservative intellectual life? Is there, in other words, more happening below the surface than people are necessarily seeing on cable news or uh, social media? Yeah, no, I think you're absolutely right. There is more happening below the surface that I think the, the general public misses out on because these are sort of boundaries within the coalition that are evolving, that are changing, that aren't always made public. 
But these these conversations are, are happening behind the scenes. And I think it's, again, similar to Canada, where historically, I remember reading about a child benefits under Mulroney. And you've got all these conservatives working together uh, for very different reasons. You've got sort of the fiscal conservatives who want to make these reforms because they're trying to get the deficit down. You have the family caucus, social conservatives who are, are looking to support the family. And you've got sort of anti-tax conservatives who, you know, want to make sure that we're not raising taxes to do any of this. You see something similar in the U.S. And I think it's it's always been there. Uh, most people don't realize, you know, the Family Research Council, the Christian Coalition were integral in the introduction of the child tax credit. Right. They have been a bit more focused on cultural uh, cultural issues for some of the reasons I talked about before. But rather than saying, you know, they don't understand their interests or they have no interest in economic issues, I think as they've learned more about economic issues, they've been really open to it and it sort of fits in well with their existing worldview. So it's not a matter of they have to change their entire worldview to take these factors into consideration. I think a lot of conservative intellectuals have said, hey, this makes sense. This is a logical conclusion. If, if we do this, it's totally consistent with our principles. And that has been effective and that's really resonated with them. And we're, we're starting to see some of the payoffs from that now. A common theme on this podcast is generational change in the world of conservative ideas and politics and the extent to which that may disrupt longstanding thinking about public policy and governance. Is it your view that younger conservative intellectuals and even politicians are more responsive to your thinking about family policy and natalist policy? And if so, is there reason to think that this policy agenda may start to find political expression as younger politicians run for president or assume leadership in the Congress or at the state level? I think that's right. A lot of it, you know, if you think about theories of change, there's people changing their mind over time. And then there's just the idea of, of cohort replacement. As people retire, younger people with slightly different views take their place and you start to get new ideas that sooner or later are, are going to bubble up and they're going to become dominant views. As just that, as, as a lot of people have pointed out, we tend to have a, a much older set of, of, of policymakers. You know, if you look at Canadian leaders or, or British leaders, you know, young guys in skinny ties versus here, it, it's folks in their 70s or 80s, a lot more traditional, that once you 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 get that, that cohort replacement, you're, you're going to see change happen relatively quickly. You've just introduced new lexicon to the podcast, Josh. In Canada, typically referred to as boys in short pants, not boys in skinny ties. Ah. Um, <laughs> We talked earlier about your comparative work, including on Canada. Let me ask a political economy question that follows up from that. In Canada, for various reasons, relying on arguments that a specific policy has been enacted in the United States and shown some success may not be a really strong or salient argument. Uh, I, I think, for instance, of healthcare policy, where the U.S. is typically held up as a contradistinction and as impediment to reform, as opposed to a model that we ought to implement. In your own work, do you find that drawing on Canadian case studies finds a responsive audience among American policymakers, or is it something that they just don't care about? No, I think uh, it's it's been pretty effective so far. The key thing is that there's the Canada of progressives' imaginations, 
uh, or American Progressive's Imaginations, which, you know, I don't think bears much resemblance to the Canada reality. I've, I've always told people that, you know, the dream of American conservatism is alive in Canada. So when you can point to these these cases where in Canadian history, you've got conservative policymakers making these decisions for conservative reasons and having these these really good effects, people then listen, right? They don't think it's necessarily just a bunch of sort of far left policies that, that a far left country does that. These are authentically conservative policies coming from authentically conservative people that we just didn't know about because Americans don't have much knowledge of, of Canada. Yeah, in that vein, I've always thought that Stephen Harper's prime ministership is a kind of underrated case study for American conservative intellectuals in terms of advancing the case for their vision and agenda. His conservatism is rock solid, including on issues that would have reached the the attention of American policymakers, including, of course, his foreign policy positions on Israel and other other issues. And, And to your point, there may be upside there in terms of pointing to a successful example of conservative governance, particularly in this moment of kind of intellectual and political flux occurring within the American right. Uh, You've been so generous with your time, Josh. I just have one final question. We've spent a lot of time talking about your your interest and and extraordinary knowledge about Canadian policymaking and Canadian politics. Have you visited the country before? And if so, what's your favorite place? I have visited a couple of times. Uh, I was born and raised in Massachusetts, so it's a, a rite of passage for all 18-year-old Massachusetts kids to drive up to Montreal so we can have our, our first <laughs> drink ever. And I've also uh, been back a couple of times to, I think, Toronto for, for a couple of conferences. And, I, and I, almost, I almost got a job at the University of Toronto at one point, so that would have completed things. Uh, I think my favorite thing is just walking around the the neighborhoods of of Toronto. There's a particular urbanism there that I really appreciate. Well, it seems to me that's a great way to to wrap up this conversation. We'll have to find a way not just to get you back on the podcast, Josh, but to to Canada at some point in in the coming months. Josh McCabe, Scholar of Family Policy and Household Stability at the Niskanen Center. I want to thank you for joining us at Hub Dialogues to share your insights and knowledge about Canadian policymaking and some of the big policy debates and developments occurring within the United States. Thank thank you so much. Thanks, John. It's been an honor. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Hub Dialogues, brought to you by The Hub, Canada's leading source for analysis and insights on public policy. We hope that you enjoyed this episode. Maybe it expanded your horizons, opened your mind to some new thinking and ideas. Please don't forget to share this episode with your friends and family. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a rating and review. That would be greatly appreciated. I'm the Hub's Executive Director, Rudyard Griffiths. The host of today's program was Sean Spear, the Hub's Editor-at-Large. This episode was produced by Amal Atar Guzman. Our audio producers are Alex Glutch and David Mata. Thanks for listening.